As you know, we have been uh, in a short series uh, right before summer called the Epic Saves of the Matriarchs. It's kind of a counterpart to our uh, amazing uh, Sunday School series about uh, the vital role of women's ministry in the local church. And I don't, you know, for everybody who was there today, super blessed. We are all, uh, Elise Fitzpatrick came and preached, or uh, spoke with us and taught us today in the class and preached to us a little bit as well. Amen. And, uh, <laughs> and it was fantastic. So it's been, uh, it's been a great experience. We've got one more left next week where we as a leadership team are going to be discussing some of the changes we're going to be making in church, specifically around uh, more the, the, the visibility of women in our, in our, uh, in our, in our, in our, our serve in the service of the church and our liturgy and other places, so um, we'd love to have you come and be part of that conversation. So please do that next week. Um, but we have been going along with that. I wanted to do a, you know a, a, a short series, just kind of highlighting how the Bible really highlights some of these great women of the faith. Now. Of course, we all know that everybody's a sinner and everybody's a bit of a train wreck, right? And we did, I call this series Epic Saves of the Matriarchs because we did a, one of my favorite series we've ever done was Epic Fails of the Patriarchs where we tried to kind of bash that notion that, you know, the patriarchs in the Old Testament are these paragons of faith and virtue that we should all teach our children to emulate, right? Um, sometimes maybe yes, but maybe sometimes no. Uh, but one of the surprising features of the Old Testament, when we really look at it, is how it highlights the, the beauty and the necessity of the gifts of women in the church and, God, and in the life of God's people. And man, nowhere do we see that more than in the story of Abigail. I love this story. Abigail, you know, I, you know, I know Jay, I tell, when I say this all the time, Jael in this tent peg, she's my girl for real, right? We, but Abigail, I'm kind of in awe of because she is... Uh, the Bible says she's beautiful, which it always says about women, but it also says she is discerning. Uh, and she really does save the day here. So um, the story itself is beautiful on multiple layers. Even, you know, if you study literature, you see all the hallmarks of great literature in this story. Uh, and so we've called this sermon, Abigail and the Big Save. Um, I'm going to ask you to stay seated. It's a long reading. But let's, uh, as you're staying seated, let's give our attention to God's inerrant word. This is from 1 Samuel 25. And then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in, in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. And therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. And when David's young men came, and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited, and then they waited. 
And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? And so David's young man turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. And yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both day and night. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared, five sayas of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came towards her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and Morse also, if by morning I leave so much as one man of all who belong to him. Now when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And let his, this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling, and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause 
or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. And then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for these beautiful narrative stories that you give us where you teach us so much about ourselves, uh, and even more importantly, you teach us about you and who you are and what you're like and who Jesus is and what he's done to save us. So we pray you would help us to see all that, Lord, uh, who we are and what our problem is and what our solution is in Christ, Lord. We pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, minds to understand, hearts to obey your perfect word, and we entrust ourselves to you, that you would beautify us, your afflicted ones. Amen. So one of my, uh, one of my favorite pastimes, especially at 12.30 a.m. on a Saturday night when I'm supposed to be finishing my sermon, is to like cruise on through YouTube and watch these air disaster recreation videos. Uh, they have like computer-generated graphic CGI, which makes these almost these super realistic-looking, uh, you know, video of air disasters and what happened with the, you know, the play-by-play and from the cockpit view and what happens. And th- anyways, there's this one, this one uh, video uh, from 2001 where there was a near miss between two massive airliners, a 747 and a DC-10. Uh, they were, they were. Uh, both cruising at 37,000 feet, and because of a series of errors by the trainee air control personnel, and then another series of errors by his supervisor that came in and tried to save the day, they literally, they put these planes on a collision course. We are heading right for each other at 37,000 feet. Uh, and the only thing that saved them was there was another system on the plane called a TCAS system that didn't have anything to do with the air traffic control. It just monitored the airspace around them, uh, and it saw the other planes, and it, and it and just made this klaxon sound alarm to the pilots, giving them these one-word commands. Dive, 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 now, dive, dive. So that what, in the, in the, in the heat of, and in the confusion of what's going on, and by this time they'd picked up the visual, they saw the plane, and, you know, who knows, what, if they're not communicating with each other, what if they both go up? What if they both go down? What if they both turn right, you know? Uh, and so this, this system is to give them super clear commands to restrain them from engaging in catastrophic failure. And without that system, planes would have crashed. They literally missed each other at, at 37,000 feet going you know, each of them going 500, 600 miles an hour, 500 miles an hour. They missed each other by 100 yards. 100 yards. On one of the planes, seven people like, got injured, broken legs and broken bones from the turbulence, and the, uh, they had to land the plane. And I guarantee you, man, those pilots got off at the end of the day, and they said, man, that was a close one. 
Man, that was a close one. <laughs> well, one of the you know, more stunning and beautiful things about God's grace and for us in salvation is that there's a system for us as well of restraining grace where God's spirit will like step in and stop us from doing like the most stupid stuff that we would possibly do otherwise. Uh, you know, we saw that in the, in the law passage today that by, you know, God's spirit will oftentimes step in uh, and restrain us. When we are about to act the fool, God will send somebody or something to restrain us from catastrophic failure. Uh, he keeps us from messing up as badly as we would without him. And man, man, do I have stories like that. And I know you have stories like that. And I'm not talking about the stories where, uh, you know, God like saved me from some, you know, some disaster and I didn't even know about it. Or some minor thing. I mean something where like, I was about to like pull the trigger on a super stupid thing. <laughs> and God like sent someone to counsel me or sent some, somehow broke into my consciousness and said, don't do that. Dive, dive, dive now. And I, and I did. And I, after the fact, I looked back on it and I was like, man, that was a close one. Woo. Man, that was a close one. <laughs> and that's what's up with our boy David in this story. David is about to make a big mistake. And God moves to stop him uh, through the discretion of Abigail. And also, uh, important piece of the puzzle is David listens. And that's what the story is really all about. Where when we are at our worst, God sends restraining grace through people and through promises. That's the, big, that's the big lesson. So let's look at that. When we are at our worst. Um, you know, another one of my favorite pastimes is complaining to God about why he's not like rescuing me from all these patterns of sin in my life. And I get like really upset with him. Like, you know, for example like scheduling myself through the week. Like, I, you know, I really want to have a disciplined self-control over my time throughout the week. And I know the importance of blocking out time for deep work uh, in order to get everything done that I'd really like to get done for the kingdom. And then I find myself at 1230 night watching air disaster videos. And I'm like, God, why, why can't you just pull this out of me? Like you pulled like method addiction right out of me. You pulled porn addiction right out of me. Why can't you just pull this awful sin right out of me and I can all, you know, complain about it, all grumpy about it. And, but I, what I don't remember, what I don't remember, what I don't think about, what I was convicted about this week is thinking about all the times that he does step in and save me from making these big mistakes, right? And that's what's happening here. Uh... <laughs> So what's the story? The story is there's a sheep shearing festival. There's this rich man named Nabal. Now if you were a Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, you would laugh at that point in the story because his name means fool. <laughs> his, his name literally means fool. So the story would be there was a man named Fool who was very rich and he had all these sheep and all these goats. 
Uh, and it was a local custom for the local warlord or whoever was powerful in that area to offer like protection. They didn't have police. They didn't have, you know, uh, social nets. So the warlord who was in charge of that area would provide protection uh, for those events. And then the people would come and offer a tribute to that warlord or to that king for protecting them during that time. Uh, because otherwise they would have, you know, they would lose much more than the tribute that they have to give. That's just what, that, how they did it back then, right? And so that's what David has done. It says that David and his men have been a wall to Nabal. And so David's making a legitimate and humble and reasonable request by coming to Nabal and saying, uh, give us some stuff. And Nabal it says Nabal railed at David's men. First he makes them wait, right? He's like puts them in the, in the waiting room and refuses to like see them for who knows how long. Uh, but probably a while because the Holy Spirit doesn't put those details in for nothing. First they have to wait. And then finally Nabal agrees to see them and it says he railed at them, which is like this aggressive, almost screaming at them. Uh, and and you know, basically what he does is he accuses David of being a runaway slave, that King Saul is the rightful king of Israel, and David is nothing more than a runaway slave who's trying to usurp King Saul's power. Why? Because it's super convenient for Naval to believe that about David, because he doesn't want to give him anything, even though David did right by him. Uh, he's foolish. And I'll, I'll tell you, man, I'll, I'll bet that touched a couple of buttons on David, don't you think? He's probably sitting there out in the cave at night thinking to himself, maybe I'm just a runaway slave. Maybe this is all wrong. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this at all. Maybe, you know, all those self-talk and self-doubt is rolling through David's mind and this foolish guy calls, you know, accuses him of this. Uh, and what happens? Nabal hits his buttons just the right way and David loses his chill. Remember, how do we know something, the Hebrew text is trying to get our attention when it repeats something three times, twice, three, four times, three times in a row. It says one thing, that David and his men strapped on their swords. David is literally strapping up and riding out to smoke this fool over a personal insult over a personal insult. Now, you know what's funny about this? What's funny about this is this is not an area that David typically struggles in. You know, we all have those personal sins that like always kind of get us, you know? But David's pretty good at this one. This, you know, the, the text goes out of its way to say twice that what, what's happening here is David's trying to save by his own hand. And this story is sandwiched in between two other stories where David had the opportunity to kill King Saul and take the throne on his own, to save, to, to, bring, to work salvation for himself. In other words, to, uh, to not wait on God and God's timing, but to force the matter into his own hands by murdering the king of Israel, which would have put a you know, black stain on him. There's two opportunities uh, when he does really good at that, he refuses to do it and waits on God, refuses to do something that's going to put a, a black mark, a, a, a blot of blood guilt and stain on him uh, and, his, and his leadership and his ministry. He's pretty good at this, and yet, you know, he's pretty good at it when it comes to Saul. He's pretty good at it when it comes to Absalom, his son. Later, he, he 
but this, this, but this foolish guy insults him and he's just ready to throw it all out for revenge. You know what we talked about last week about how I want the Christian life to roll, I, how I want sanctification to work is that we like attack these areas of sin in our lives and we plant the flag of victory on this mountain and then we never have to look at it again. We can just walk onto the next mountain, the next battle, the next layer of indwelling sin. That ground is conquered. This new ground is where we're headed and we're just like this. I want sanctification to be this continual upward climb where I'm planting flags of victory over my sin. Uh, But this again, it says something totally different. It says something totally different. See, this, David's being tempted in an area of strength. You know, there's certain areas where we're all naturally strong in certain ways, and yet, if you flip that script up a little bit, if you repackage that sin, boom, there you are. Now, I'm not personally going to be tempted anymore by being a rock star. I think it's, it's pretty much over for me. A 56-year-old man, it's probably not going to happen, right? Uh, so that kind of, you know, that being tempted to like throw all my energy and effort into glorifying myself in that way is pretty much past. Satan's not going to come and try and tempt me in that. However, if you repackage that sin a little bit, and you take all the what I really want out of that, which is fame and glory and recognition and love and a feeling of safety and security, and, uh, and you repackage it in the form of a celebrity pastor or a super uh, successful church, and you hit me at it from a, you know, different, a different way, there we are again. The flag that I had planted on the hill of... of uh, victory over self-glorification through being a rock star is now all of a sudden a live fight. And that's, you know, man, I don't want it to be like that, but it is. And why is God showing us this? This is David, the man after God's own heart. You know, David is looked very fondly on by God. And he's saying to us, look, this is even, this is happening to David. Don't be discouraged when it happens to you. (laughs) Because this is just the boat we're in. You're going to have victory over sin one day. You could have years away from it, thinking you're like in the free and clear, and then it gets repackaged a little bit. Boom. Blindsided. There you are again. And what does God do? Does God say, because you have fallen in this sin, I now therefore spit you out of my mouth? No, he doesn't. What does he do? He sends restraining grace in the form of this woman, Abigail. He sends help to his son. So let's look at what happens. God sends restraining grace often through people. Now, he can send restraining grace through all kinds of different ways. He can send restraining grace through jail. (laughs) He can send restraining grace through a protracted disease. He can send restraining grace by throwing you down the steps and breaking your leg, hypothetically. Uh, He could send restraining grace uh, by having people in your life who love you enough to speak the truth even when you don't want to hear it even when they know you're going to be offended, but they love you enough to do it anyways. And 
Abigail doesn't know David. But this is who God sends, right? You know, I've come to believe that in Christian counseling and in, in, in biblical counseling and pastoral counseling, you know, we're trying to develop a, a real side-by-side ministry here at the church where it's like, you know, it's not just the pastors and elders who are doing all the counseling, but we're building a, uh, a culture of discipleship where we're all helping each other along down the road. And the reason that that works is I've become convinced that the single most important quality in a counselor isn't so much their education or their training or their experience or even their wisdom. The most important thing for a counselor to be is not you. <laughs> not you. Why? Because anybody, a Christian who's you know, reasonably wise and reasonably mature in the faith will have an objective view about what's going on with you that you don't have. And oftentimes God uses people like that to come and give us wisdom that we just can't see as a blessing to us. And if, if your opinion, if your view, if your uh, you know, narrative, if your perception of the events are the absolute fact of what's happened, you're in trouble. But if we recognize, all of us, this is all of us in the same boat, that one of the most important and qualifying things about a counselor is that they just not be you, <laughs> you're in pretty good shape. I mean, wisdom and, you know, training and, and, and knowledge are all important parts of that package as well. If you have discerning and wise counselors, that's fantastic, you should. Uh, but being willing to listen to someone other than the committee in your head is so vital. And that's, what, uh, that's really what's being brought out here with, with David, right? Abigail, Abigail's described as, as being discerning and beautiful, and that's in contrast to her husband, who is, his very name is Fool, and he's a foolish and rash and harsh man. Um, you know, I don't know what you picture when we think about Abigail. You think of, uh, maybe you think of a, you know, a, a wise, you know, older, uh, you know, a wise, older matron of the house. She's really, you know, not the matriarch in the, in the normal sense. We can't be for sure, but being what we know about Abigail, or we know about Nabal, uh, he's a Carmelite, but he clearly uh, cares nothing about God and the things of God. And it seems like he might die of some sort of stroke later on in the story. Some of this is hypothetical, I get it. But based on that culture and that time uh, and the position of women in those positions of, of uh, you know, in those places, this very wealthy man is probably an older guy who's married to a younger woman. She's probably teenagers, maybe late teens, early 20s. He's probably much older than her. And he's got all the power in this relationship. So for her, she's not just discerning. She's not just beautiful. She's incredibly brave. She's incredibly brave. She is taking a big risk to do what is right in order to try and save her husband. What if she's wrong? What if David doesn't come up? What if her husband uh, decides that that was too extravagant in a gift? She has, I mean, she's got no backup plan She's got no backup plan if things go south for her. And yet she is brave enough uh, and God has given her the gifts in this whole collage of people. Abigail, this young woman, is the only one who has the spiritual gifts of discernment and the ability to come in and save the day. Uh, there's a lesson in there for us. 
there's a lesson in there when we think about women's giftings and the role of women in the ministry of our church. But for here, you know, there's this unnamed servant. He comes straight to Abigail, bypassing Nabal because he just knows what? Nabal's so foolish he won't even listen. He gives Abigail the report of what happens and he trusts that she's the one who's going to be able to figure out what to do. Uh, and her response, she hasn't seen David, she hasn't heard David. Just based on what she has been told and based on her own discernment and gifts, she does, she, she does this act. She loads up this generous amount of tribute for offering for David and she hurries to meet him personally to dissuade him from what he's about to do. You know, we see in the text, it's not just Abigail working on her own, right? God is using Abigail as his chosen vessel, as his chosen servant to carry out this mission without which disaster is about to strike. She is the klaxon saying, dive, dive, dive. That is averting catastrophic failure to David. David says at the end of the story, he says to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Now, God can work any way he wants, and he does. Uh, you know, but often he works through the people that he puts in our lives. And God sends this woman of good sense to restrain him from making this huge mistake. And that's, there's one more super important piece of the puzzle here in order to avoid this catastrophic failure, and that is that David has to listen to her. If she does all this, and she goes all, puts herself all the way out, and David just runs her over in his bloodlust, catastrophic failure. David has to listen to who God has sent. And so one of the beautiful layers of the literary beauty of this passage is that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is setting up these contrasts between Nabal, the fool, who refuses to listen to wise counsel. And that's really what fool means in the Bible. We think, for us, fool is like a, you know, a, a, a court jester, or a, a fool is someone who's dense, or uh, has a, you know, is not a, not a very bright individual. In a biblical use of the word fool, the fool is often the smartest guy or the smartest gal in the room. And they're so convinced of how smart they are that they refuse to listen to what anyone else has to say to them. That's Nabal, the fool. He refuses to listen to the counsel of God that God has sent through this woman, Abigail. And David, the man after God's own heart, we know, you know, it's kind of funny where she talks about David, uh, you know, not ever having any stain of sin against him, and we all know that's not true. Uh, David is not a perfect man. He is not a sinless man. Uh, but what he is, is by the power of the Spirit operating in him, he is a man who can repent. <laughs> He's a man who, when, when confronted, is able to listen to the word of God and repent. And that's the, that's the difference. That's the difference. Look, man, one of the sad, sad realities of
for me, one of the saddest realities and the hardest part of pastoral work is recognizing when someone has got to that place where they're so foolish, you just know they're not gonna hear, they're just not going to listen. And they, be, you, you know, they become known as someone who won't listen and even their best, you know, they, they either slowly like cut off all their friends that are trying to speak truth to their life or uh, eventually people just stop trying to speak truth to their life. They're so adamant about their rightness, they're so adamant about being right or protecting their image or their reputation in the world or whatever it may be uh, that they just become, they become foolish to the point of refusing to listen to counsel. And I mean, it's sad when that happens to someone that's in, you know, in a church or in your life that, you, you know, that you're not close with. It's, it's, it's devastating when it happens to someone you're friends with. It's devastating when it happens to someone that you're close to, that you really care about. Uh, and man, what this passage tells us is that that is a dangerous place to be. But faith, now I heard this, this great little clip, I think it was from Max Lucado or something like that on a radio the other day, it was talking about how some situation in the, you know, in a, in the biblical narrative where, uh, he's talking about uh, Manoah, uh, the father of Samson, and he asks the angel his name, and the angel says to him, uh, well, I can't, I'm not gonna tell you because you wouldn't be able to understand it anyways. And he was like, man, that's like such a, uh, that, that's the answer in so many instances of biblical truth. Or we're people, we're rational people, and whenever God says, do this, we always wanna say, why? And we always expect this detailed, you know, cause and effect moral analysis of why that should be before we're willing to obey. Um, but what Max Lucado said was faith is, is realizing that, that a lot of the answers from God are, even if I told you, you wouldn't understand, so trust my word. That's what faith is. It's trusting that God's word, even when you don't fully understand it all the time. Uh, and that's what you know, David is doing, and that's what brings reconciliation, what brings peace, what breaks down dams of resentment and, and re creates reconciliation and, and growth in God's people is that a willingness to believe and trust in God and trust in what he's calling us to do, even when we fully don't understand it or believe it. And so David listens to Abigail and crisis is averted. Well, the last thing is what is, you know, what does she say to him? What does she say to him? Let's, let's look at that because it's important. You know, Abigail's, Abigail's speech is, is beautiful. Again, in it is there's more of these layers of literary beauty. But how does God's go, how does God's restraining grace operate? What does he do? Does he come with threats? Does he come with law? Or does he come with something else? The first layer we see is that Abigail gives David real warnings and real admonitions in verse 31. She says, my Lord, if you listen to me, if you listen, if you listen to me, she says, then my Lord will have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. The warning is not 
if you do this, David, I will spit you out of my mouth. The warning is, there will be real consequences from this sin and real pangs of guilt that will follow you and you do not want to do this. See, his rival, King Saul, has just committed a genocide in this city called Nob where he's, he's come in and, and, and massacred all the priests and all their families. And he, now he's known as this bloodthirsty killer and God is saying to David, there's gonna be real consequences if you do this. You'll be now known as no different from Saul You'll be known as a bloodthirsty killer and you don't want that to happen. Plus you don't want the guilt of that and the shame of that. And so there are warnings that there are deep and tragic consequences for sin. It's not that God will disown us, but really bad things can happen. And the second layer is Abigail, now speaking as a prophetess. Hey, here's another prophetess in the Bible. Uh, she makes these promises, these covenant promises to David. She reminds him of the promise that God made him of kingship in verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you as prince over Israel, he's reminding him, look, God's promises are true and they're worthy of trusting and waiting for. And this is a crazy recurring pattern in David's story. David, uh, his rival, King Saul, has a son who's the heir to the throne named Jonathan, and God uses Jonathan to come to David and say, you're going to be king. That's crazy. What's even crazier is that a cup twice, when Saul is on the verge of capturing David, God comes in and changes Saul's mind, and Saul himself affirms to David Saul uses, or God uses Saul to reaffirm his promise to David, you will be king over Israel. And now here comes Abigail reaffirming that promise again, and God does that with us. Through his word, through his scripture, through our liturgy every week, God is reaffirming to us and reminding us that his promises are true and they're worth waiting for. And he and his wisdom and his power are more important and more, more than ours, and we are, it's, it's better for us to wait on the Lord. And then uh, she makes a promise of covenant with him. This is for all you Bible nerds. Listen, listen what she says. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Here's Abigail, the prophetess, uh, proclaiming the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. This is years in the future. The prophet Nathan comes to Abigail, or comes to David, and gives him this promise that his descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel until finally one of his descendants will be the eternal king. That his house will be made a sure house. And here's Abigail, the prophetess, uh, years before Nathan says this to David, coming and affirming this to David. And then she makes promises of life to him. And the Lord, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies shall be, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. You think that got David's attention right there? Hey, that sounds familiar. Remember that whole Goliath thing with the sling? When you like ran out into the battle with like as this skinny kid with a, five polished rocks and a sling against this guy in the power of the Lord? 
and I delivered you, and I delivered Israel. Remember that? Sometimes God, when he sends people into our lives as restraining grace, they will often use language that like, just smacks us upside the head. Uh, and, and bound up in the bundle of the living is kind of a Hebrew way of saying bound up in the book of life. Your name is already written in the book of life. You're already safe. There's nothing to fear. You don't have to go and take vengeance on this foolish man. The third layer in this narrative, the deepest layer, is the most beautiful. She makes, or she is, modeling the promise of, of Jesus. So we believe as a church in something called Christ-centered preaching, which is simply the belief that Jesus in Luke chapter 24, right after the resurrection, his first appearance to the disciples, he comes to his disciples, uh, and he opens their minds to the scripture. Basically, he says to them, all the, all the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, from Moses, that's the very beginning, all the way through the whole thing, is really all about me. All the stories, uh, all, the, all the crazy stories that you see are all like shadows or, or have a symbolic reference or nature to who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. And what do we see... What do we see Abigail doing in this story? Every story in the Bible gives a symbolic storyline of Jesus and what he would do on our behalf. And so we see Abigail, the guiltless Abigail, coming and she asks the king, on me alone be the guilt, O Lord. She's asking for all the guilt to be placed on her. Uh, she brings this sacrificial offering to appease the wrath of the king, which is about to annihilate the people. Saves all of Nabal's men, saves David from, from guilt as well and the tarnish on the messianic line. Uh, she speaks words of healing and wisdom and prophecy and makes promises of eternal life. And, in, in, in one of the deepest displays of humility in the scriptures, I didn't read this part, but right you know, at the end of the story, at the end of the story, David recognizes the value of this woman. And after her husband is, is, dies, he's like, man, that, that woman is a strong helper. That woman is, is an azer. That woman is, I, <laughs> I need to marry her so she'll be around the next time I'm about to do something super stupid. <laughs> and her response to David's... Uh, Overture is, uh, she says, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. You know, like I said, I said earlier, that God sends restraining grace to us to keep us from making all, often these big ticket mistakes. And yet we still all sin. That's not... Uh, it's not enough to save us. We need more grace than that. You see, like it or not, whether you like it or not, and everyone knows this at the depths of their heart, one day you will die and you will come face to face with God and you will give an account for your life and what's happened in your life. And when that happens, what do we look to? How are we going to deal with all the big mistakes that weren't restrained? How do we deal with the moral failure that we've racked up? 
that we all know we have, of the moral guilt that we all have. Uh, and what Christianity says is we don't look to ourselves. We don't look to what we do. We don't look to trying to make up for the bad that we've done in order to even things out. We look to what Jesus has done for us and his perfect life and his sacrificial death given to us. And what do we see when we look at Jesus? We see that Jesus put himself in harm's way to save us. We see that Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God on our behalf. We see that he took all of our guilt upon himself. He speaks words of healing and wisdom and revelation and promise to us. He's purchased us and bound us up in the book of life through his death and shows himself in the deepest humility, literally washing the feet of his servants in a show of the heart of God for us, guaranteeing um, that he will see us all the way home. And, 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 and in this story, God uses this young girl, this discerning young girl to model saving grace of Jesus that we all need. And the more we understand that, who God really is, and the more we understand what God has really done for us, the more we're willing to listen when he comes to send us restraining grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Look, we are a stiff-necked people. I don't even want to know, Lord, how much restraining grace you saved me that I don't even know about. Or that we just blow off or don't even recognize, Lord. We thank you for the ones we do. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us humble. We pray, Lord, that you would make us teachable. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come as teacher. Uh, and that you would dissuade us from all the foolishness that we still hold on to for dear life, and that we would trust you, Lord, even if we don't fully understand it, that we would trust you, and we would do what your word calls us to do, Lord, as a way to honor you and a way of thanking you, but also knowing that that is truly the path of freedom and of joy. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.